0: settle in this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. How do you become a better you? How do I become a better me? This is a question that is is asked a lot in our world today, isn't it? Some in our world say that we become better by changing the way we feel and the way in which we think through eating right through positive thinking. Today we have a pill and a plan and a program for just about everything. Others will say you become better by changing the way in which you look. I've heard of some men and women who have come out of cosmetic surgery and say, I'm a new person. To which my response is, well, you you look like a new person, but that doesn't mean that you really are one. Then there are ads on tv that say changing the way you smell can make your life better and we laugh about that but it's true isn't it by changing your cologne by changing your perfume or deodorant you can make yourself a better you there are others who say that money can change your life and make it better And I think if you ask folks in here with money, they would tell you that money has definitely changed things in their life, but has not necessarily made it better. There are some who say that that education improves life and makes one better. And though it can open up new opportunities for people, I think we would all agree that education doesn't necessarily change people for the better. Here's the thing, there is one common thing that we as believers share with most of the people in the world today, and it's this, that we we all agree that there is something amiss in us. Most all of us have this desire to be better than we are that's why you see these types of ads everywhere that's why the largest section of books in any major bookstore is the self-help section that's why people like oprah and dr phil have jobs they make millions because people know something is not right in them and desperately needs to change now where we differ greatly believers from the world in which we live is in the answer we give to that question the world believes that if we can make a physical change our life will change for the better If we can change our diet or our prescription or the way in which we think or about the way in which we manage our money or the way we deal with people or change the the clothes we wear or the way we wear our hair our life will be transformed but folks scripture clearly teaches that it will not God has actually addressed these things in his word in the book of Jeremiah, which is not where we're going to be today, but uh, we're going to be here for just a few moments and look at a couple of other passages as well. I want to share a few verses with you, but in the book of Jeremiah, God through his prophet jeremiah addresses a lot of these superficial changes and comes right out and says that that these things don't ultimately change anything in jeremiah chapter 13 verse 23 and you have these in your spiritual growth guide by the way god says through jeremiah he says can the ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil the prophet's point here is that just like one cannot change the color of their skin and an animal cannot change its appearance you cannot change you what about what we said earlier what about through cosmetic changes what about through making yourself smell better by changing the soap you use or the deodorant you wear well believe it or not jeremiah has something to say about this as well in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 22 he says though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap the stain of your guilt is before me declares the Lord God so Irish spring and old spice won't cut it according to scripture right what about money Won't that change things for the better? Well, believe it or not, Solomon has spoken on this a lot. He he spoke about it in Ecclesiastes. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Remember, Solomon had more money than any of us, okay? He said this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Verse 13, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept back by their owner to his hurt. Solomon says hoarding hurts the hoarder. That's what he's saying there. Money won't change a person for the better from the inside out. What about just beating a person into submission? Maybe that'll work. You think that'll change folks just beating the bad out of them? Some have tried. God says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.30, In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. And Solomon says in Proverbs 27.22, Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. God is clear in his word that we cannot transform who we are By changing the way we look, by changing the way we eat, or by the things we have, or by changing the way we think or smell, or even by changing certain behaviors. And the reason why is because the root of our problem is in our hearts. Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus also said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Scripture is clear all throughout God's Word. It's clear that out of the overflow of our hearts, the hands and the feet, they do. The problem is in our hearts. So if our hearts don't change, nothing ultimately changes. Well, how can our hearts be changed? Scripture is clear. It's only through Jesus. Church, our message to the world that is counter to the message of the world but is the only hope for the world is that for men and women to be transformed their hearts must be changed and only Christ can do it. That is the message that we are to take into the world. That is the main message of the Bible, and that is the main message of our passage we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. We're continuing our study through Acts, and today we're going to be looking at one of the greatest makeovers, one of the greatest transformations that has ever taken place. We're going to be looking at the conversion and the transformation of Saul of Tarsus. But before we get into our text for today, we just need to do a little bit of background here on where we are in the book. And we also need to do a little bit of background into Saul's life. Because both of these will really help us as we move forward in this text. For the past few weeks, we have been discussing Christian ministry outside of Jerusalem in Samaria and even further out to the desert in Gaza. And we have been looking primarily at the ministry of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Remember in the first part of Acts chapter 8, after Stephen is killed, Christians were persecuted all over Jerusalem. And as a result, many of them are scattered and we're told that wherever they went, they went out preaching Christ. And in Acts 8, Luke focuses in on... Philip's ministry in Samaria and then in Acts chapter 9 after focusing on Philip Luke then turns his attention back on what is taking place in Jerusalem especially under the wicked leadership of Saul now remember the first time we were introduced to Saul was in Acts chapter 7 We're told he was there when Stephen was put to death. We're told that those who were stoning Stephen laid their garments at Saul's feet so that they could be more free to hurl stones at Stephen. And after that, after Stephen is killed in the first part of Acts 8, we're told that persecution breaks out all over Jerusalem and Saul is the one who is leading the charge and he is snatching up Christians left and right. Now, who is Saul? Well, we're told that he was from Tarsus, which was a very distinguished city, a very prosperous place. There was a great university there that ranked among the universities in that day located in Athens and in Alexandria. These were like the Ivy League schools of the first century. So many people from Tarsus were very prosperous and they were highly educated, and Saul is no exception. He is what we would say from, he came from good stock. Saul did. His father was a Roman citizen. He was also a Jew and a Pharisee. He was from the respected tribe of Benjamin. And those of y'all, you remember King Saul. He was a great king among the Jewish people. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. This was a, a, a very good pedigree that Paul came from, a very good family line. He was from good stock. Around the age of 13, Saul traveled to Jerusalem for schooling and he sat under the great Jewish leader named Gamaliel. Remember we talked about Gamaliel. Many referred to him as Rabban Gamaliel, master teacher Gamaliel. He was a highly respected, deeply revered, Jewish leader. History says that when Gamaliel died, the Jewish people said the reverence of the law died with Gamaliel. So Saul studied under this well-respected and brilliant Jewish leader. A part of Saul's studies involved him memorizing great portions of the Old Testament. So Saul knew the Old Testament very well. Which is why after he was converted, he could immediately begin to do ministry in Damascus and then he does ministry in Jerusalem because he had a good handle of the scriptures. What he needed to do was just plug Jesus in to all the places where he left him out. i not told he ever had an encounter with Jesus during his earthly ministry before he encounters him on the road to Damascus. It may have been after studying in Jerusalem, he returned to Tarsus for a time and they just passed each other during Jesus' earthly ministry. I think if he would have had an encounter with him, one of the four gospel writers might have made mention of that. And since they don't, uh, we're we're, uh, left to assume that this was his first encounter with Jesus here. He returns to Jerusalem later on, and again, we see him first mentioned in this encounter with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and what we learn in Acts chapter 7 and in the first part of Acts chapter 8 and in the first part of Acts chapter 9 is that Saul was a great enemy of the church looking back on Saul's life Saul or the way we know him today Paul the apostle referred to himself as the world's worst sinner the chief of sinners and he had good reason to believe this so we said a few sermons ago Saul had one goal, to wipe Christianity out, to tear the church apart. He was the first great enemy of Christianity. In Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 9, he says this of himself. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul locked up many of the saints in prison. He cast his vote to have them put to death. He tortured them. He forced them to blaspheme God by renouncing their faith in Christ. He says in a raging fury, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He chased them all over everywhere, persecuting them like a man possessed. And and notice something else here. Paul says... I myself was convinced that I ought to do these things. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul thought what he was doing was right, but he was wrong. In our world today, we have people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Folks, Paul was as sincere as you can be, and he was sincerely wrong. And he carried out these wicked acts until we get here to Acts chapter 9. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story in Acts 9 this morning and next week and we're going to discuss this great transformation that took place in the life of this wicked man. And What I want to do this morning and next week, we won't get all through them all today, but I want to draw out from this story... 10 characteristics of a transformed life. When one is transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus, when one is changed from the inside out, there are going to be several things that are going to be evident in one's life. And the first is this, repentance. That's point number one. A transformed person repents of their sin folks get this without repentance there can be no salvation jesus said this didn't he he said unless you repent you will all likewise perish repentance is key it's necessary and as we have established already saul needed to repent didn't he he was a great enemy of the church. He was the chief of sinners desperately. He needed to repent. Look at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Let's stop there for a minute. Notice here Saul's wickedness. Look at that word breathing. Maybe translated in your Bibles breathing out, but actually that is is literally translated breathing in. Now that changes things a little bit and I think that takes Saul's depravity a bit further down. He's not just shouting out threats of persecution and murder. He is breathing it in. Saul's life was devoted to threatening and persecuting and killing Christians. He wasn't just giving lip service to it. He was solely devoted to do just that. John MacArthur said it like this. He said, Saul was totally encompassed. His whole lifestyle, his very life, breath, is threat and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Like we said earlier, he was was a man possessed. He was wicked to the core. Persecuting Christians was not just a Saturday afternoon hobby for Saul. This is all he thought about. This is all he spent his time doing. He was after every disciple of Jesus, not just the 12, but every follower of Christ and would stop at nothing to take them all out. And Luke tells us that Saul wasn't just concerned with keeping Christians out of Jerusalem and keeping their influence away from Jerusalem, but he chased them all over everywhere. He snatched them up, put them away, and cast his vote to have them put to death. Here in the first two verses of Acts 9, we learn that Saul found out about a group of Christians who had fled to Damascus. And at this time, Christians were predominantly Jewish, right? We know about some Christians in Samaria. We have the Ethiopian eunuch we looked at last week who took the gospel back to Africa. But for the most part... Christians were Jewish at this time, and though they would meet together, they also remained connected to the synagogues, which is probably why Paul had jurisdiction to leave Jerusalem and go to other areas and snatch them up and arrest them. The Romans gave certain authority to the high priest of the Jews, and so the reason why Paul could go to these other areas and and snatch them up and arrest them is because he had been given authority by the high priest. Look at verse 2. And he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is getting everything he needs to make these arrests in Damascus. And by the way, notice this is a lot of trouble that Saul is going through to snatch these Christians up in a place that was over 140 miles away. I mean, this was close to a two-weeks journey away. Why is he going through all this trouble to make all of these arrests? Well, this is, once again, he was obsessed. This is all he could think about, an evil enemy of Christ. And notice, I love this, he was looking for men and women belonging to the way. I like that description, don't you? This was before the Christian; they were called Christians, remember, first at Antioch. So this is the title they had before that. He was looking for people of the way. This description indicates that the Christians were effectively making their message known. Am I right? Saul so and the others knew very well that they were teaching that Jesus is the way to God, the only way. Like Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they were teaching that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved jesus said this as well you know this verse very well john 14 6 he said i am the way pretty clear and so paul is going out to destroy this work and though he eventually makes it to damascus he's not the same person when he gets there is he look at what happens on the way in verses three through four Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I want you to notice something very important here. Notice up to this point, there's no stopping Saul. No one on earth is standing in this guy's way. He's going to stop at nothing to make sure the church is ripped apart. And if it were not for this encounter here, I have no doubt he probably would have continued persecuting the church and believers until his dying day but on that day on the road to Damascus Paul is stopped dead in his tracks he is knocked to the ground and is confronted by his great savior and he is also shown his great sin Saul encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and he is never the same after that he is forever changed listen folks For one to be transformed, they're going to have to be stopped in their tracks by God. That is key. They are going to have to come face to face with their Savior and also face to face with their sin. And they're going to have to turn away from that sin and turn toward their Savior, the Lord Jesus. This has to happen for one to be transformed. I don't understand people who say you can share the gospel today and not talk about sin. Listen, if people don't see their need, their their sin, they will not see their need for and run to and cling to the Savior. Did Jesus talk about Saul's sin? You better believe it. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is an awesome text because here we have Jesus evangelizing. That's what we have in this text. We have Jesus' evangelistic approach. And the first thing he does is he addresses Saul's sin. And there is simple application to be made here by us, folks. And it's this, if that's the way Jesus does it, then that's the way we should do it. Paul is stopped in his tracks by God. He's told of his sin. And though we're not told specifically here, we know by his actions going forward and through the rest of this story that Paul turns from his sin, he repented, and his life was never the same. Folks, this is one of the key characteristics of a transformed life. Repentance. I have to deal with this a lot in ministry. I'll have people come up to me and say, you know, I have this friend or this family member who claims to be a Christian, but their life doesn't look like it at all. And at times I'll ask them, well, do they seem messed up over their sin? Do they show any desire to repent? Do they have any desire to live for the Lord? And they'll be like, well, no, not really. And then I'll say, well, I don't know them but I know this if they claim to be a follower of Christ there should be some evidence in their life that they do in fact follow Christ that just should make sense to us folks followers of Christ by definition follow Christ they say well they don't but they they prayed a prayer and then I'll say listen the Bible doesn't say you're saved just by simply praying a prayer It's not just a confession that saves you. And some of you hear that, and I know you're shocked at me saying that. But it's not just me that's saying it. Jesus said it. He said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, that's a confession. And I will say, I never knew you. Confession is not enough. And you say, well, if it's not enough, then what is? Paul tells us in Romans 10. He says, you're to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We have to be changed in our hearts. Our hearts have to be changed. And then he says, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. Making Christ Lord means turning away from your ways of doing things. That's repentance. You have to turn over the reins of your life to the Lord Jesus. One more passage. John says in 1 John 3, verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's talking about habitual, unrepentant sin. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning like that because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not what? Pray a prayer? Walk an aisle? No? No? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, John is not talking about works-based righteousness here, okay? He's not talking about working to earn favor before God. Good works don't save you, but Scripture is crystal clear that good works do show that you are, in fact, saved. They are the, the fruit of our faith. And I'm sorry for that long footnote. But it's important that I camp out of here for a minute because there's a lot of confusion over this. Well, one of the main characteristics to a transformed life is, is just this, it's, it's repentance. People who have been changed from the inside out, they, they hate sin, though they struggle with sin, though we're prone to wonder. We don't like that about ourselves. We're messed up about messing up. We have a desire to turn from it and be removed from it forever. Here's the second characteristic of a transformed life. Number two, a transformed person places their faith in Christ. Not only do they turn from their sin, but they turn toward the Savior. They look to Christ. They trust in Him alone for salvation. And Paul does that here on the Damascus Road. And some say, well, where does he do that? Where do you see that here? Well, we're not told for sure. It's implied. Just like the faith of the Ethiopian eunuch we looked at last week, his faith is not mentioned specifically, but we know that he was saved, right? Because we see the Ethiopian man before Philip and before he hears the gospel, and then we see him afterwards. And the same is true of Saul. The Saul before the Damascus road and the Saul after the Damascus road are completely different. So my answer to the question of when he's converted, somewhere in between the white spaces of verses 5 through 9, okay? Notice he calls him Lord in verse 5. He says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds with, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Oh, can, can you just imagine the pain of hearing that stinging indictment? Paul hearing from the Lord from the heavens that he is God's great enemy. He thought he was God's servant. But he found out on that day that he was persecuting the Lord of glory. Oh, the trauma that one statement must have caused Saul. But I also believe at that moment, after being broken by that stinging indictment, I believe Saul, broken and blind, gave his life up and over to the Lord Jesus. I believe at this point, Saul, though he was bowed as low as he could be to the ground, bowed his heart a bit lower. And right then and there, turned from his sin and placed his faith and trust in Christ alone and was saved. Folks, true transformation will not come until this happens, until our hearts are changed. And God's got to do that work. He's got to confront us with our sin. He's got to show us our need of the Savior and we must turn from that sin and we must place our hearts Faith in Christ alone. Paul does that here. And notice that God doesn't just let him lie around, does he, after that? We'll talk about this more next week, but notice after being forgiven of sin and made right with God, this is not the end for Saul, is it? This is the very beginning. This is the very beginning. Many of us often treat forgiveness as an end, but it's not. Not in Scripture. We're not just saved by God's grace and from God's wrath, but we are saved for good works. We're saved for God's service. Look at what he tells Saul. He says in verse 6, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So God's got a job for Saul, doesn't he? And how does Saul respond? Does he resist? No, we're told that... He gets up and he goes, doesn't he? This is another characteristic here of a transformed life. Not only does a transformed person repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ, but a transformed person, number three, is obedient to God's word. Look at verse 7 through 9. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. They were dumbfounded. They were not sure what had just happened and what to do next. But notice who did. Look at verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What a transformation that took place here. Saul went from being one of Christ's great enemies to being his great servant. And he did exactly what Christ called him to do. He went to Damascus and he went there and he waited for the Lord for three days. And he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he didn't do anything but sit there and do exactly what Christ told him to do. He went to Damascus and he waited. Scripture is clear, folks. Once again, obedience is a clear sign of the transformed life. Now, that doesn't mean that all who are obedient are saved. Again, your heart has to be changed. You have to be changed from the inside out. But when your heart is changed, when it belongs to God, when it is surrendered to the lordship of Christ, what results is loving obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's a confession again, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. John says in 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So obedience to God's word is a clear sign of, of a transformed life. Well, we got through three today. Three of ten. We got seven more to go. We'll see if we can cover those next week, okay? But to end this morning, I want to end by drawing your attention to something here in this text. I want you to notice how Saul enters into Damascus after this encounter. Look again at verse 8. Says Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul was not anything like he was before, right? Before this encounter, Saul was a strong and powerful leader on a mission from the great high priest leading this strong group of Jews into Damascus to destroy the church and to snatch up Christians everywhere. We are told that that Saul was as ferocious and powerful an enemy as the church has ever known. But after this encounter, Instead of entering into this city bold and powerful and intimidating, we're told that Saul enters in lonely and broken and blind. Instead of leading these guys in, we're told that Saul is led in by the hand. Now some look at Saul's transformation here and they say, it sure doesn't look like a transformation for the better for me, from my perspective. I would much rather be strong and powerful and important than lowly and broken and blind. Doesn't sound like a transformation for the better, but believe me when I tell you that it is. At times, God has to break us to get us to where he needs us to be. I heard Matt Chandler say it like this. This is at our men's retreat. He said this in hard words. But he says, God will break your hands in love to get you to where he needs you to be. Now, that's not my hope for any of you. But get this, whatever he has to do is worth it. Because where God wants you to be, living in relationship with him, living to love and serve him is better than anywhere else. It's better to be broken and blind in right relationship with God through Jesus than to be strong and healthy without Him. Where are you this morning? I know there are some of you here this morning who have not yet been brought to the place where God's got your attention. He's going to have to break you. I hope it doesn't have to come to that. For some of you it will, but here's my prayer for all of you today. My prayer is that God would do whatever it takes to get you where you need to be with Him. And my prayer is that you would know that whatever God has to do to get you to where you need to be is better than where you are in the state you're in without Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're there. You're already there. You've been brought to your knees by the circumstances of this life and you're at your wit's end. If this is you, scripture speaks to this. God has a word for you. I urge you to do what the psalmist says do in Psalm 107 when he talks about being at your wit's end. He says, cry out to the Lord. Look to Him. Cling to Him. Turn from your sinfulness turn to him look to and cling to the savior the lord jesus and be saved he will deliver you from your distresses if you've never made that decision i pray you would today let's pray